Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. The pandemic opened our collective eyes to a litany of issues in healthcare and beyond. While we have focused several episodes to how the pandemic has affected medical care in the form of telehealth and the digital health revolution, another perspective and topic of discussion has been employees' ability to effectively work remotely, oftentimes from home. At the urgence of various officials and corporate leaders, we witnessed droves of employees creating home offices and pivoting from face-to-face interaction to virtual ones. As it appears we're closer to a post-pandemic world, employers are still embracing remote work. With so many workers operating away from their company offices, privacy and security has become an even more pressing issue for employers as they navigate the trade-off between security and employee experience. Welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. I'm Michael McNutt, Director of Education and Events for Weedy, and I've temporarily moved from the producer chair to the host chair as I'm sitting in for Matthew Albright this week. Weedy is a national membership organization where the healthcare IT community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. This week, I'm happy to welcome Dennis O'Shea, founder of Mobile Mentor, a global leader in the endpoint ecosystem, helping clients to navigate the right balance between security and employee experience. Last year, Mobile Mentor was named Microsoft's 2021 Global Partner of the Year for modern endpoint management, primarily for their work helping a live hospice safely treat patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dennis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Such a privilege to be on your podcast. Oh, thank, thank you very much. Uh, before we talk about zero-touch provisioning um, and, and findings from your recent study at Mobile Mentor, I wanted to quickly get to know about you. As I mentioned, you know, our, our backstory, every hero has a backstory, an origin story. Uh, some folks came from the nuclear industry. Others worked at eBay. Others uh, were ex- excellent athletes in college. Tell us your story, what brings you to us today. My story that brings us to us today started with a failure. I was working at Nokia for about 15 years, and I had a great run in my career there. And I got to a point in the mid-2000s where I was helping to uh, build out some cellular technology in Europe, in Switzerland. And I was trying to sell a very large deal to a European uh, network operator who pushed back, and I lost the sale. And they pushed back because they said, why would we buy this new technology from you? when our customers are not using the technology we bought off you last year. And I had no response. And I went away (laughs) with my tail between my legs. And it forced some serious introspection around how people use technology and what drives adoption of technology, what makes it useful, and how we make technology really consumable for the people who we expect to buy it. And that, that triggered me leaving Nokia and starting my own business, Mobile Mentor, to figure out how do we get people in society today to make better use of the technology they buy. And so I found a mobile mentor to do one thing, which was to help people like you or I get their first smartphone properly configured and up and running. And if you think back to the days when getting your first BlackBerry or your first smartphone, setting it up, getting email working was difficult, getting your music on it was hard, syncing your contacts and calendar and all that was really hard. So we hired a small army of young people who would go out and sit with one customer at a time and get your smartphone working, sync it with your laptop, get everything working for you, make you super productive. And we solved a big pain point with that service. And we scale that up to do that for a million people around the world and and make those individuals productive. So 
we've come to this place because we deeply understand the mobile workforce and we understand what drives adoption of technology, but also what are the barriers to adoption of technology. Yeah. And where we try and specialize is helping people get that balance right between their productivity and security. No, no, that's perfect. And fantastic story of making lemonade out of lemons uh, in order to make an omelet. Yes. You had to break some eggs and you, and you definitely did that. Um, that balance is very important that you're just talking about between experience, um, the, the experience of the customer and security. It reminds me of this app that I used for my young kids who had their uh, Kindle. And I, I put in this the software and all it did was slow everything down. So, so in this uh, new age of remote learning, remote working, remote everything, um, it is quite, it's, it's very difficult to find that balance between the great you know, kind of seamless experience where you don't feel that there's any security, but there has to be security in there. So, so how do you find that balance? It's a lot of hard work, actually, and it's a lot of trial and error. So we carry a few scars and, uh, and bruises from uh, work we've done over the last 17 years. But what, what, we, what we find most effective is really understanding the way an organization needs to work and then designing their security quite purposefully in a way that enables their employees to be productive wherever they work and not allow security to get in the way. We need to have security. It needs to be well-designed. And we need to also respect the privacy of the end user. But we need to make sure that we're not getting in the way of people doing their jobs. Definitely. Definitely. I, I definitely appreciate that. And before we go any further, and we'll definitely, the meat of this podcast will be focused on that study, which had so many excellent talking points there. Yes. Um, let's talk about the recent history uh, and how we've had to pivot because of this pandemic. Um, environmentally, let's, let's, let's take a step back, level set, current state. What has changed over the past two years between me working here in my beautiful home office and working at a corporate office? We think there's about five major shifts. We call them seismic shifts that have changed the way people work. So if you think about pre-pandemic, not much changed for about 20 years. People went to work, they logged onto a computer provided by their employer, and they worked, and they logged off, and they went home, and they left their work behind in most cases. And five big things changed in the last two years. Firstly, we all had to go home and work remotely. That was, that was the first thing. And immediately after that, cybercrime started to really mushroom. And we saw a 500% increase in cybercrime where hospitals and healthcare providers and everybody was getting hacked. And it was really tragic. And then shortly after that, or actually around the same time, the global chip shortage really started to bite. So we had to allow people to use their personal laptops and computers to work. No longer could we provide them company laptops in the time frame we needed. We had to allow people to use BYO, you know, bring your own laptops and desktops. And then in late 2020, when we thought we were coming out of this pandemic, organizations started hiring again. And many of them were hiring remote employees. And so they're onboarding people remotely, people they've never met using BYO technology in their home office with a consumer-grade internet connection, and yet they're dealing with patient data, citizen data, all sorts of sensitive information, out of sight, out of mind. So taking increased risks, essentially. And then in 2021, we saw the great resignation, where employees suddenly realized, I've got lots of power now. There's a big power shift from the employer to the employee. And employees started to realize, I can leave my job, I can get a better job, but I can stay right here at this desk, 
all it's going to change is I'm going to work on a different laptop, but I can choose my hours and I can work the way I want to work with a more flexible employer. Mm -hmm. So those five together, remote working, cybercrime, chip shortage, um, onboarding people remotely whom we've never met, and then the great resignation. Wow, what a load of change in the workplace in two short years. Yeah. No, no, and I see, and you've already addressed what, what companies did initially, because it was like one day we were all just normally working, and the next day we were told, hey, you got to go home. And there wasn't that opportunity and that time to kind of shift things around to say, okay, well, here we're going to set up our security standards. It's like, no, like, stay home, don't come in the office, but continue working. And people just had to yeah. do what they had to do. Um, yeah. Of course, as we've moved on and we're close to hopefully crossing fingers, knocking on wood, a post-pandemic world, um, have you seen from kind of a subject matter expertise view uh, over the past two years, companies are starting to adapt and move forward and doing the right thing. Thanks to people like you. Thanks to people. Thanks to companies like Mobile Mentor. Yes, thank you. We, we have seen huge changes. Like if I reflect back to the stuff that I saw happening, say in April 2020, I'll give you a couple of examples. A friend of mine, um, his wife is a geriatrician, and she normally works in a hospital dealing with the, the geriatrics. She had to go home and suddenly do telehealth um, consultations from her iPhone. It was a BYO, personal iPhone, no security on it whatsoever. She's on her home internet connection and she's seeing her patients every day over a personal iPhone wow. doing a, a FaceTime call. So this was before any proper telehealth applications had been deployed or any security, but she was doing the right thing because she was serving her patients mm -hmm. with the way that she knew best and she was still able to you know, provide a great service. Another crazy one I remember was a friend of mine who's a nurse uh, was using a laptop at home. Suddenly the laptop was like, no, you need to reset your password. She couldn't do it. So she had to drive to the hospital, sit in the parking lot, connect to the Wi-Fi from outside the hospital because she wasn't allowed in, get on the Wi-Fi and do the password reset and then go back home to continue working. Oh my goodness. So that's clunky, yeah. right? But those are the realities many, many people faced when all of this happened quickly and we were not prepared. Yeah. No, no. And then as not being prepared, whenever you're, you know, you fail to prepare, prepare to fail, the old <laughs> saying, um, you know, looking at it from a privacy and security perspective, even a security perspective, it's safe to say that the increase of remote working has caused holes in our security framework, thus allowing us to be more vulnerable to cyber attacks, more so than ever. I mean, this is one of the things I would explain to folks when Weedy would host events about privacy and security. It's like you're looking at, you know, this pandemic is just, you know, we're at our weakest point. That's when the bad actors come in. So, you know, have you seen, I mean, you've definitely seen that and you've noticed companies just taking a real hit when it came to security. We have, and it's, it's really tragic. You touched on a very important point. It's tragic to see that the, the bad actors deliberately went after healthcare and education and local and state government. And those are the organizations who were really trying to help the population get through the pandemic and, you know, help families with education, help sick people uh, and help communities with, with funding and all that. And I think what happened was that the, the bad actors decided to follow the money. It was very simple. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty easy to find out how much how much money each school received to help navigate through the pandemic. Oh, yeah. And healthcare providers and hospitals and cities. And um, like we've got a spreadsheet that shows all the funds that go in that went into every school in the state where we're in Tennessee. And so if that if that file was available to us, it was probably available to many other people mm -hmm. as well. 
And so we believe the bad actors are simply following the money. They know how much money each entity received. They know how much to ask for in their ransom. And so it was a very targeted campaign. And sadly, it went after the part of society that needed that money to get mm-hmm. through the pandemic and that least deserved to be hacked and ransomed. But that was the harsh reality we witnessed in 2020 and 2021. Yeah, harsh reality and definitely unfortunate situations. Uh, We're speaking with Dennis O'Shea, founder of Mobile Mentor here on the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. Now, let's talk about this study. Uh, This is the first thing that really caught my mind, and I've been soaking it in, and it's so well done, too. I mean, I'm not a a, a really hardcore reader, so it was nice nice pictures, graphics, large letters. I enjoyed it. (laughs) So thank you very much. (laughs) So so let's walk through. It's a study of remote working and privacy and security. Um, uh, Walk us through the study. Who would you speak with? And then let's talk through some key findings that you guys came up with. Sure. So we did the study because we were really curious to understand what was actually going on in all the millions of home offices where people work now. So you and I are both in a home office surrounded by devices that are all connected. Some of them might be owned by our employer, some are personal, and we've got data flying around everywhere. Mm -hmm. We're using passwords and we're logging in and out of things. And we wanted to understand what's really going on in all those home offices and what security risks are people taking and how is healthcare data at risk or Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, what, what's happening in that space. So we did this nationwide study, a thousand people in the US, and we wanted to understand how they're actually working. And we dug into a couple of areas, security being the primary one, and then secondly, the employee experience, and trying to understand the trade-offs that people are making, and the crazy things that people are doing to get by and get through and do the best they can yep. with the situation that we've all landed in. Mm-hmm. And some of the findings are, are painful, because we realized that we are actually still very vulnerable as a society. Mm-hmm. So the hacking and the ransoms and all that awful stuff we saw in the last two years, it's not going away and it's partly our own fault. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain that in a couple of minutes. Um, and, and we think that actually the worst is yet to come mm. when we look at what the youngest people in, our, in the workforce are doing. Yeah. So if we believe that you know, the young people who've entered the workforce in the last two years are going to progress through the workforce, become managers, become leaders. Then the more we study their behavior, the better we can predict the future. And we see the young generation actually being a source of liability for many organizations. Uh-oh. Well, I'm glad I'm, I'm, glad I'm pushing 50. I don't have to worry about that. But yeah, let's talk, let's talk about some of the things that the study came out you know, in terms of you know, security awareness, uh, the healthy fear of data breaches, et cetera. So, so go into some of the key points that uh, the study brought out. Yeah, so we found that healthcare workers do have a healthy fear of data breaches. There is a strong awareness that healthcare is under attack. That's good. That's yes. really good. Um, part of the problem, though, is we found that security awareness training in healthcare mm-hmm. is not effective. It's just not effective. And we know that because 59% of people in healthcare do receive some kind of security awareness training, but 31% believe they have not been adequately trained to protect patient data. Oh, yeah. So there's an understanding that we have been entrusted with the patient's most sensitive, most personal information, and we have a duty, we have an obligation to protect that information. But they feel like they've not been given enough training or the right tools or the wherewithal to protect that information. Oftentimes, yeah. Oftentimes, the security training is a, is a quarterly video that one takes uh, that has, is dated 
<laughs> and and you have multiple chances to complete the post video test. It's like, well, that's that's defeating the purpose. I can just cheat my way through that. Exactly. And you, you've hit a really important point there, because I think historically the training that many clinicians had to go through around HIPAA compliance was so bad. It was so awful. It was so boring. It was so mind numbing. People just went next, 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 done. You know, thank God I'm done with that and print out a certificate for the year. Exactly. That's what happened in healthcare for a long time. The quality of the experience was awful. And I think now people have just become almost immune or inert to the, the security awareness training that's happening nowadays, which is a lot better. You know, there's some good tools out there, mm -hmm. but I think people are fatigued with what, what used to be known as security awareness training or HIPAA awareness training. Yeah. Um, it, it has not been effective in healthcare. It is more effective in other industries, but I think healthcare professionals are just fatigued and jaded with poor quality, low grade um, legacy training content. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the proper word, legacy training. Um, yeah. You mentioned briefly the younger generation. So, so uh, they're going to be taking care of us. Uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> it's a good thing. It's All right. A good thing. All right. Good. Like they're, they're a fascinating bunch. And, you know, we get older and they move into positions in the workplace. And they're really interesting from a couple of perspectives. Um, we did the research by generation. So we looked at Gen Z and then young millennials, older millennials, Gen X. I guess both of us would fit the Gen X. You were Gen X. We're Gen and, X. Yes, you are. <laughs> and then the baby boomers. And um, Gen Z is super interesting because for a couple of reasons. One, they entered the workforce during the pandemic, mm -hmm. right? So I think they're between 21 and 23. That's their demographic range. And they probably never worked in an office environment mm -hmm. and knew an office-based work culture like we all did. Yeah. They don't know what it's like to just go to work every day, have lunch with your colleagues, and maybe go for a beer on a Friday, and all that comes with that, which we, which we grew up with and we got used to. Mm -hmm. And what it gave us is a sense of belonging because we understood contextually the organization we worked for. And we had lots of loose links with people in other departments and people we didn't get to work with every day. Whereas Gen Z joined during the pandemic. It's all happening over video. They're on Zoom or Teams all day, talking to a smaller range of people. It's an intense engagement on, on video, mm -hmm. but they're missing all the loose links. And they're missing some of that sense of belonging and the contextual understanding of where they fit into their organization. Mm. So no. they've had a rough start yeah. to their career. It's, it's a rough start. And then the other interesting thing about Gen Z is uh, psychographically, they're defined as the only generation alive that has no recollection of 9-11. Oh, well, yeah. Now, I, bet, yeah. I bet you and every, all of our listeners know exactly where you were, what you were doing, who you were with, when 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. we, all, we all remember because it had a profound impact on our psychology and everything about us, except Gen Z. They were running around in nappies, completely oblivious to what was going on. And so for the next 20 years, our minds were impacted by all sorts of considerations related to security. You know, security for countries at a macro level and an economy and many, many considerations. And, you know, if you lived in the United States, the way Department of Homeland Security tightened up on travel and everything, security was a big consideration. But Gen Z didn't experience it in the way everybody else did. So they sauntered through the next 18 or 19 years and then into the workforce during a pandemic. So their formative life experience is very different to Gen X or yeah. any other generation oh, in the workforce today. 
very different. And when we look at what they're doing and what are their attitudes and perceptions, they've got some notable, no, notable differences to other generations. For example, when we ask them, how often do you see a security policy at work? About 14% of them say, never. And when we ask them about, when, did, when was the last time you received security awareness training? A decent percentage say, can't ever remember ever seeing any training. Now, we know that's not true. We call BS on that because all employees see the same policies and they all receive security awareness training. Uh, conversely, when we ask Gen Z, uh, when was the last time you saw a privacy policy at work? Wow, we got a totally different answer. They see privacy policies more than any other generation. Mm. They are more aware of privacy policies. They actually read the text. They, they pay attention to privacy considerations more than any other generation, yet they're almost blind to security. So this has huge implications if you're an employer and you're trying to communicate to this young generation about the importance of protecting information and being secure in the workplace. They're probably not listening. You know, if we keep banging on about security and security policies and all that, they're probably not listening. But if we talk about privacy and we say, hey, Michael, everything we're doing, all these initiatives are to protect your personal information and the personal information of your colleagues and of our patients as well. Now we've got their attention because we framed it as privacy. And they're listening. How, how is that? I mean, it's really just a semantic almost. Like you're just kind of changing words to gear a particular trigger in their head. But it's really your, to anyone else, I, I almost think, and it's wrong, privacy and security are almost synonymous. To a young person, yeah, it's, that's very interesting that that's the case. Any, any, any idea as to why? That if you say security, 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 they shut you out. But if you say privacy, it's all ears, but it's still the same goal. You're looking at the same goal. You're just coming at it from a different direction. I, I think part of the answer lies in their behavior online. Okay. Like the, and the part of the equation here that I have not been able to reconcile in my head. Yeah. But you watch how much that generation share online. Yeah. It's insane, right? It's, you know, they broadcast to the world that they're on vacation, that their apartment is empty. And they broadcast the name of their pet to the world. And we know that there's a strong correlation between the pet's name and their passwords. Mm. And they broadcast all their friends' information of where they are and what they're doing. It's unbelievable how much they share online. But they do, they do so consciously, knowingly. So they, they have some awareness of what they're doing from a privacy perspective. And I think they do it um, consciously. But they're also very, very protective of their privacy in a, in a work context. Mm -hmm. And I haven't quite reconciled these, these different um, forces. And I, I've got one Gen Z in my household, so I'm, I'm, I'm observing closely <laughs> to see what she's doing and trying to understand her perspective. You're just standing behind her with a notepad just watching her. <laughs> and I'm encouraging her to use a password management tool for all her passwords. And she's like, nah. Well, I was about to say, let's talk about passwords and password hygiene. And I'm yeah. guessing with young people, we, we discussed this before we recorded, that they have so many devices and so many apps, whether it's streaming, gaming, whatever, there's going to be a password issue, you know, because they're either going to use the same password over and over again, or they're just going to keep very basic passwords because they want that access to those apps so quickly. You're right. Password, password hygiene is a huge issue, especially in healthcare. It's a huge issue. And the younger 
generation have the most passwords, which is crazy because they have not been in the workforce that long, mm -hmm. but they have more work-related passwords than people who've been in the workforce for longer. Mm -hmm. They also have more personal passwords for all their social accounts and streaming accounts and financial accounts and all of that. So young people have a, an enormous number of passwords and what they're doing with them is quite scary. Actually, we're all doing crazy things with our passwords. So across the board in healthcare, 26% of people write their work passwords in a personal journal or diary. So think about that for a moment, writing their work passwords in a personal journal. And 24% of people in healthcare save their passwords on a notes app on their phone. Ooh. And now we know in healthcare, phones are mainly owned by the clinicians. Mm -hmm. BYO, smartphones are very, very, very big in healthcare. And then about 22% keep their work passwords in Excel or a Word document. So people are doing crazy things to try and cope with the password overload problem. Yeah. Because we're not walking databases. We can't have these strong um, eight-character passwords for everything with lots of characters and numbers, and we can't change them every 90 days. We, we just can't cope with that. Yeah. So we find hacks. We cheat. And, and, and the research shows that 6% of people use the word password mm. as their password, which is crazy. <laughs> And 15% of people use a variation of their pet's name. So it might be the pet's name with a number or the pet's name with a season or a month or something like that. And so people are doing crazy things with their passwords. And the young generation have the biggest problem. So, so you mentioned passwordless in the study. Uh, how, how, how can one do this? How can one go passwordless? We're actually closer to going passwordless than we realize many people think that's a scary concept and how is it possible do you use an iphone Michael? yes you do so when you look at your iphone it probably unlocks because it scans about three hundred thousand data points on your face and it goes this is michael McNutt mm -hmm. for certain this is michael and it logs you into the operating system the ios operating system and then all the apps you've downloaded from a, a, a safe place like the apple app store you're now signed into them as well through single sign-on. Yes. Okay? And if you want to get into other websites, you may be sent a code, and you have to type in a four- or six-digit code. I, I so just did I that just, the other day. Yep. There you go. So if we tie those three things together, first was biometrics, so scanning your face or reading your fingerprint or maybe listening to your voice in the future or scanning your retina. So using biometrics, that's part one. Part two is single sign-on, tying your identity together, so you can get into all these applications with one login event and not logging into different applications all day. And the third part is multi-factor authentication, that extra code, that extra verification step, and it comes in many different forms. So you're doing it today with your iPhone. The bridge we need to cross is enabling that to happen on a Windows laptop, on a Mac, on every tablet, and across all our devices and all our applications. And like our organization, we're a small organization compared to say most healthcare systems. We've been passwordless for about a year and a half. So I have not typed a password um, in the last year or two wow. because I, I look at my computer in the morning, I wiggle the mouse, the computer scans my face, signs me in, I'm into all my applications, all my websites. So the biometrics, the single sign-on, and then I do have to do punch in these codes. And when I'm getting into certain websites, then my phone's going bing, and I have to do the codes as two-factor codes. 
but it's it's a reality. You're going passwordless is the reality, and we'll ultimately get to a point where we can get down to one password that we'll use for everything. It'll be a strong, secure password, hopefully. Maybe a whole sentence like, I love the Weedy podcast or something yeah. like that. And you, you, you sign in with that and it takes you into all your websites and apps and, and everything. And eventually we'll do away with that and we'll simply get a one-time code on the day we join the organization. You'll use that one-time code to get into your machine. They'll do all the scanning and capture your identity and authenticate you. And after that, you can do away with that one-time code. And from then on, it's biometrics, single sign-on, two-factor authentication. That's a beautiful future. An excellent segue because uh, I wanted to talk about kind of the onboarding element that Mobile Mentor does. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, that, that was one of the third, that was the final conclusion you came up with your study. Uh, walk us through a couple of minutes of your thoughts on, on employee onboarding, how it is, and how would you like it to be? You know, because I know you have a, a unique way that Mobile Mentor does onboarding for companies. Yeah, what we're seeing and what we've learned from the study is that the onboarding experience is horrible today in most organizations and has been throughout the pandemic. And in particular, for people who work remotely, uh, we found that it takes about three days to get a laptop properly set up for a remote worker in healthcare, three days. And it requires three support calls to IT to get stuff done. And what's happening is every computer is being manually imaged and sent out to the worker, the remote worker, and then they have to do some stuff. It might be uninstall this and reinstall that and log in here, and then there's all these codes. And this goes on back and forth for a couple of days. And it's, it's an awful first experience for that remote employee. In particular, when you think about the staffing shortages, where we need more nurses, we need more doctors, we need them on the job right away, not three days after they start. And so... That can be simplified down to about a one-hour experience with what's called zero-touch provisioning. And so the idea is that you order your computer from Dell or Microsoft or wherever, and you have it shipped directly to the home of the nurse or the clinician or the remote worker. They sign in with their work credentials, and the device self-configures. And it takes about 30 minutes, but it installs all the security policies, downloads your applications, syncs all your files and your folders, and about 30 minutes later, bang, you've got a fully configured machine. And we've been doing that for organizations throughout the panic where throughout the pandemic, where they were not able to get to the office to physically set up new computers and ship them out to employees. And we were able to get new machines set up and new employees set up really quickly so they could provide care faster to patients who needed it. And this has become mainstream now. So it's not something that's unique to our company, Mobile Mentor, it's technology that's enabled by Microsoft, by Apple, by Google, by others. Uh, and healthcare providers can set up this technology to get zero-touch provisioning and get new employees up and running in an hour as opposed to waiting three days. Excellent. Now, now zero-touch provisioning, that's a lot of the work that you did with a live hospice, correct? Getting them it all is. on board. That, that's it. Okay, so, so, so yeah. walk real quickly what you did with the actually directly with the hospice last year. Okay, so it was early 2020. They were in a situation where they could no longer send healthcare workers out into the homes of elderly people in the community because they were terrified they would pass on COVID to those people in their homes. So what we helped them to do was provision laptops for all their chaplains, social workers, and care workers, and then iPads for their patients. So the patients who are um, receiving care in their own home had an iPad, 
and the chaplain or the care worker had a laptop and they were able to do video calls every day, check in on the status of the patient, talk about their medication, their dosage, what care they needed, what supplies they needed. And Alive Hospice was the only hospice in this part of the country, in Tennessee, that was able to continually provide care throughout the pandemic with no break because of this technology. Mm, and they didn't send their care workers into the patients' homes, which meant they weren't passing on COVID. So lives were saved because of what they did. And we compare that to some of the tragic stories out of other, other rest homes in New York City, for example, where COVID was spreading around from caregiver to patient and back to caregivers and chaplains, and it was just tragic. Mm-hmm. And so a live hospice did a great job in continuing to provide care without passing COVID around the community. That's incredible. Fantastic. That, that, that was a really fantastic story that I read about the work that she did there. So, so congratulations thank you. and thank you for thank that. You. Uh, this has been a fantastic eye-opening look into the new era of remote working and how the healthcare industry is evolving. Thankfully, we're moving uh, in a better direction. Uh, before we go, along with the guidance you offered uh, from the report, and we'll have a link to the report available in the episode description, uh, what else can you offer our listeners who represent employers, and they are indeed employees, uh, what can you offer them in terms of guidance for remote working and creating that balance between experience and security? Give them some some final words. Okay. I would say strategically, this mix of hybrid work is not going away, and organizations just need to get better at it. And if we don't do a good enough job in anticipating the needs of our remote workers, they will work around our security policies and they will take risks and they will use cloud services that we don't even know about. So my advice to healthcare leaders is to involve your remote workers in any product decisions you make. When you're choosing new tools, new technologies, rolling out new ways of working and collaborating, involve your remote workers because if you don't, they'll be the first ones to figure out the holes and to figure out how to bypass your initiatives. So bring them into the tent. Involve them in your product selection decisions. That's that's my strategic advice. Tactically, my advice is observe Gen Z because they're coming in waves. We've already got the first cohort to them in the workforce. There's another group coming in May when they graduate and next May and the following May, and they will flood the workforce in the next five years. So we're going to repeat this study every year for the next four years. So we have a five-year longitudinal record tracking the perceptions, the behaviors, the actions of that generation. And we know that when they get into managerial positions and leadership positions, and we're all getting older, they're going to run the, they're going to run the show. Mm-hmm. So the more we can understand them and harness all the good things they bring and adapt to their unique idiosyncrasies, the better we're going to set up our workforce for success long term. That sounds fantastic. That sounds great. So Gen Z, we're keeping an eye on you. This is coming from a Gen X. Exactly. We're watching you. (laughs) We're watching you. (laughs) This has been a conversation with Dennis O'Shea, founder of Mobile Mentor. Dennis, thank you so much for being a guest this week. We truly appreciate it. It was a fun time. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate the opportunity. Great. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast where the healthcare IT community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association on our website, weedy.org. Thank you for joining us and be safe.